0: Again, thanks so much to all of you for being here this morning. And a special welcome to any that may be coming in thinking they're early this morning. I'm glad you're here as well. Well, let's just ask God that he would help us as we give attention to his word this morning. Father, thank you that you give us this privilege to gather together week after week to hear encouragement, to hear exhortation, to hear challenge from Your Word. Lord, I pray that You would give us ears to hear this morning. Lord, I come aware myself of just being physically tired, and I know I'm not the only one. Would You minister by Your Spirit among us? Would You help us to see clearly? Give us hearts to respond faithfully. Lord, we need You for any of this to be fruitful this morning. That is why we've gathered and we entrust our time now. To You this morning. In Your great name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Throughout the history of the Christian church, among the devout, I I would say there is a pretty good track record, a decent track record of being good followers, good disciples, and that's a wonderful trait. But what hasn't always been quite so wonderful is some of the things over the history of the church that we've been followers of. Over the centuries, the church has called its people to many different things. Men have been called to war and to inquisitors' racks as well as to pacifism and non-compliance. They've been called to endorse kings and political platforms as well as isolation and anarchy. People have been called to poverty, to self-denial, as well as to wealth and self-indulgence. The church has called people to sobriety and technical regulations, as well as to freedoms that can seem downright ungodly. There is no question that coming to faith in Christ involves a call. The question is, what exactly is that call? How is it reflected in our lives and in our gatherings? How does it appeal to those around us or repulse them? Friends, these are not just theoretical questions. They are integral to our understanding of what it means to be disciples. They define what we are trying to grow in as disciples and determine what we are calling others to when we seek to make disciples. See, for those that aim to be faithful disciples as we're aiming to be, what we are called to affects everything. Now, um, my apologies because... What should be up on that screen right now, um, I'm going to blame on the hour of sleep lost. I left it at home. Um, So we'll keep it simple. Here's where we're going this morning. We have one main idea this morning. That's what I just shared, that, that what we are called to affects everything. And in order to see what it is that we are called to, we're going to look at this passage in Hebrews Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. And there we will be given an example, a picture of two mountains. So one main idea. Then we're going to look at two mountains. And then finally we're going to finish with three ways that we can be applying, three applications. What does this mean? Effect, what effect does the, do the truths that are revealed in these two mountains, the pictures that we'll see, what does that have on the way that we live and the way that we relate to one another? So would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll begin reading in verse 18. Again, for faithful disciples, what we are called to affects everything. So we're going to see what we are called to as we come to this picture of these two mountains. Verse 18, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But... And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The Hebrews that the author is writing to are in danger of abandoning Jesus to go back to their Jewish heritage. They have undergone trials and persecutions Legitim- the legitimacy of what they believe has been questioned by their relatives, by their friends, by their neighbors. Have you forgotten the majesty of the, the Jewish faith? They, they've been challenged. The, the inheritance that you have as, as a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What, what about Moses? What about the law? The great exodus he led his people in the history that we share of David, the prophets, isn't following Jesus, forsaking this noble heritage. This letter was written to encourage these saints to hold on. As we've looked the last couple of weeks, to keep running the race, to persevere in the faith like the saints of old, That have gone before you, of whom the world was not worthy. So the author here continues his plea, his exhortation to press on, to persevere, by doing a little compare and contrast between the old and the new covenants. And he does it by symbolizing each in a different mountain. So he can't allow his hearers to be confused about what they are called to because what we are called to affects everything. So he starts with Sinai. The author of Hebrews doesn't mention it by name, but every Jew would have immediately recognized the imagery drawn from one of the most important events in Israel's history, the giving of the law, and more specifically, the Ten Commandments. Again, I direct your eyes to the screen normally because I'm about to read from Exodus chapter 19 and 20. If you want, you can turn there and follow along. But if not, just listen carefully. Exodus chapter 19. As God prepares to give His people the Ten Commandments to proclaim the law to them. He wants them all to gather in a sacred assembly to be ready for what is about to come. And he tells Moses, you shall set limits for the people all around Mount Sinai, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. This is verse 12, Exodus 19. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. goes on, To say even if one of the animals should wander onto the mountain, you're to put that animal to death because God is here and this place is holy. And there is danger in approaching Him. On to verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp Trembled. that's a loud trumpet blast this isn't just an earthly trumpet blast that's being talked about here they are being summoned by God and His host verse 17 then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire I think Moses was getting some major dude points at this point because the whole assembly is there trembling. And yet he's marching up the mountain. Then we transition into Exodus 20, where the Ten Commandments are given: Shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, steal, bear false witness i not cover your neighbor's house, wife, anything that is your neighbor's. Now, verse 18, immediately after that final commandment is given, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Imagine being in that place. The sheer terror of what is going on around you thunder and lightning fire on the mountain the earth trembling a voice from the heavens this fact that you're told to come to the mountain but you're not allowed to touch the mountain lest you die this these aren't computer graphics in some hollywood blockbuster they were there When the earth was shaking. When their ears were being assaulted. The trumpet blast by the thunder, by the voice of God Himself. I I think for most of us, we may have tasted at best small glimpses of anything like this. You know, a really bad, violent thunderstorm can make us a little on edge. was in an earthquake, and it was in Virginia. It wasn't California or something, so it wasn't grand, but I was outside and could feel the whole ground beneath me shaking a year and a half ago. It made me a bit uneasy. People come running out of their houses. Again, nothing like I'm sure some have been through that have grown up in other areas. Or, I have a cousin who was in Japan a couple of years ago when, when the one hit Tokyo, and for days they felt the aftershocks. It just described not only the physical damage done, but the emotional trauma and terror. For time after that. And that's just one piece of what's going on here. You add the fire, you add all these things that are going on, and this is the situation that they are in. All their senses were engaged, much more so than they wanted them to be. So much that they're asking Moses to make it stop. You talk to him, then you talk to us. But we can't bear Him talking to us anymore. I wonder how they slept that night. This is the events of the day roll through your head. The author of Hebrews says that's not what we have come to. This is the imagery that the author of Hebrews draws upon in chapter 12. The giving of the law with fire and tempest. The trumpet, the voice that they sought relief from. The ominous restrictions. But it's also a picture of the law apart from a person. Look at how impersonal these descriptions are in chapter 12. God Himself is not even pictured. It's only a voice, a voice that causes terror. This whole scene is is dripping with fear and intimidation. Even Moses, the mediator of that covenant, is pictured here as trembling with fear. Now that picture is contrasted with another mountain. Mount Zion, which which is an actual mountain in Jerusalem, but here it's talked about in its spiritual sense that the heavenly city, the spiritual Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, where we are brought into the presence not only of God Himself, but to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to... To God, the judge of all. To the spirits of the righteous made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What a contrast. Instead of being kept away for fear of death, we are brought in to the presence of God Himself. It's much more than just a disembodied voice. We are brought to his dwelling place, the city of the living God. Not just him at the top of the mountain with warnings don't come any closer. We're being brought to him, the innumerable angels in joyous celebration. We're brought into the assembly of saints past and present. We're welcomed in by Jesus Himself who's made a way for us not by the rules that we keep but by the blood that He has shed. What we see here is not distance and restriction and fear but closeness and welcome and celebration. We have been ushered into the presence of the One the Israelites were trembling in fear of, who they could not approach at all, even the base of the mountain where He was coming down momentarily to. This is only possible because of Jesus and the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel was killed by Cain, and his blood cried out to God for justice. But Jesus' blood was shed to fulfill justice. And it cries out now for our mercy. And so we join the assembly of the firstborn. Who is the firstborn? Well, Jesus is the firstborn of many brethren. He's our older brother. He's made it possible for us to be welcomed in to His family, His inheritance. It rightly belongs to Him. He is the one who fulfilled righteousness and yet He came to rescue us, to share His inheritance with us. We are only there by His good grace. So the assembly of the firstborn is His redeemed. It's His church. It's current believers. And it's striking to see the present tense language of all in this passage. We're not told that we will come to Mount Zion or that we will join innumerable angels in festal gathering or will join the assembling of those enrolled in heaven or will come to God the Judge or to Jesus, but that we have come. You have come to Mount Zion and to all of these things. We have not come to a mountain with a rope around it saying, Stop! Come no further! Restricted access? Instead, we have been brought near. We have entered the presence of God Himself and joined the ranks of His saints. Not someday. Now. We are there. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We are already citizens of heaven. It is not a tentative thing. If we have trusted in the blood shed for us, our future is not in jeopardy. It is not theoretical. We have not come to a place of fear and terror and question, but acceptance and joy. Now, understand, we read something like this, and God the judge of all could sound like a fearful thing. But here it is meant to be a reassuring element of God's character. Because Jesus' blood speaks mercy for us. God as judge comforts those who have been abused and mocked and afflicted and mistreated for their faith. God is the judge of all, and one day He will make mercy all things right. It's meant to be a comfort for those who are in persecution. This reality of God as judge. Now, These these spiritual realities can, can be hard to grasp when we can't see them with our physical eyes. I don't feel like I'm in heaven this morning. I feel tired. But that doesn't make them any less true. They, they are not dependent upon our ability to see them or to feel them. We have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. It is our present reality. It is the unseen that is going on all around what we do see, what we do struggle with and fight against. We are there. There. So what? So what does that mean for us? What impact, what bearing does that have on how we live our lives now? On how we relate as a church with one another? Is what, if what we are called to affects everything, what impact should what is revealed here about these two mountains have on us? I think three things. Three things I want to talk about this morning. The first is the impact grace should have on us. At the beginning of his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, author Philip Yancey tells this account. A prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for a two-year-old daughter, through sobs and tears, she told me she had been renting out her daughter, a two-year-old. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn on her own in a night. She had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. For, for one thing, it made me legally liable. I am required to report cases of child abuse. I, I had no idea what to say to this woman at last I asked if she had ever thought of going to a church for help I will never forget the look of pure naive shock that crossed her face church she cried why would I ever go there I was already feeling terrible about myself. They'd just make me feel worse. Yancey goes on to reflect that, that people, the worst of people, always seem to be drawn to Jesus rather than repelled by him. In fact, the drawing seemed to be in direct proportion to the depths to which the person had sunk. How is it possible for a church which claims to be the body of Christ to repel the type of people who were so drawn to Jesus Himself? Uh, Let me be real clear. It's not my intention to be a downer this morning. But I do wonder, do, do we think that her reaction is very different from many others in our culture might currently have. Now, I believe that this is a church where grace has permeated who we are, affects how we relate to one another. So this this isn't meant to be lump us all in the same category and, and see, boy, We're coming to beat ourselves up this morning. That's not at all the intention. But I think it is good to examine ourselves. Could anything that's represented here be said of us or or be a concern for us if this woman, someone like her, encountered us? Which mountain have we come to? Which mountain do others see? Which mountain do others come to when they relate with us? Friends, we haven't come to a mountain of rules and regulations and threats of death. We have come to the throne of grace. Not because of our own merit in any way, but because of the blood of Jesus that cries out, Mercy! On our behalf. No one should be trembling for fear or shame in our assembly. No one. All of us, we all come as needy sinners. Vile, naked, and poor. We are not here because we homeschool or we are good Republicans. We're here because we desperately need a Savior and God has had mercy on us. So may no one else who desperately needs a Savior ever think that there is a velvet rope separating them from Him because of anything that we do. To the contrary, we should be trophies of His grace to those around us. We should be quick to tell of our great need and His great provision. We're not monuments of our own accomplishment, of our own achievements. Shouldn't sinners be drawn to us like they were to Jesus? Our relationship with God has been defined by mercy and grace, and that should radically affect everything about how we relate to one another, and our care groups, and our one-on-one conversations, as well as to those that are in the exact same lost condition that we were in before Christ rescued us. Or that their particular sin pattern may look different than ours did. We may have grown up in the church and they may be in a very dirty, dark place. But their need is no greater than ours. It took the same blood of Christ to be shed for me as it did to anyone that is still not in Christ. So let's not be shocked when In an accountability setting, someone confesses something that we don't presently struggle with, we must recognize, but for the grace of God. That could be me. Do do we struggle with certain sins as more damning? Adultery, divorce, homosexual sin, prostitute, the drunkard, the drug dealer... Someone putting a ban on assault weapons. I'm just checking. I'm just seeing if they. We don't avoid or reject or shame people into repentance. We seek to love prodigals the same way the Father does. What sin is beyond Christ's ability to save? Our call is to help them see that Jesus died for that sin too. As believers, we're just beggars that are helping other beggars know where to find bread. We're not the one giving handouts. We're just another person that God has been merciful and kind to and we want to show others the way to Him. Our call is to help them see Jesus died for your sin. If our hearts have grown cold, we need to examine which mountain we're camped out at. It's not hard looking at these two categories to see where the Pharisees lived. The question is, though, where do we live? Isn't it in the presence of the Father who has already welcomed us warts and all and added us To his family. Friends, you and I, we need to remember this. First of all, for our own confidence in God, He doesn't keep us far off. We're not at the base of the mountain with Him saying, Don't touch, don't come any closer. No, the blood has been shed. Our sins have been covered and we have been brought to His holy dwelling place. We have been counted in among His redeemed. We need it for our own confidence and knowing right now, though I feel there, I'm welcomed before the throne. I don't have to work up to it to say, is it okay now? Is now, can I try and maybe put just my pinky toe on and see, see what happens? No. We can come boldly to the throne. The price has been paid, the sacrifice has been made. We are accepted. We have been received into the courts of heaven. There is nothing barring us from His presence. We need to remember that. We need to remind one another of that. Because we all forget. We all struggle. We all have times when we're just beat up by life. Whether it's a too familiar sin that we just can't seem to get past. Whether it's just a long day and we're tired. And weary or a long fight with illness, some struggle at work. We all need to be reminded. And so we need to remember this not only for ourselves, but for those that are around us. And we need to remember because there is a lost world that has no hope apart from a God who is merciful and redeems no matter what your baggage is. What we are called to affects everything. And friends, we have been called to grace. We've also been called to relationship. Some of you may have heard of the man that was shipwrecked and stranded for two years on a deserted island. When the rescuers interviewed him, they took particular interest in the the three structures that he had built. This one is my house where I sleep, he explained. Okay, how about this one? Well, that one, that's my church. That's where I worship. Still wondering why a solitary individual needed three buildings, the interviewer inquired about the third hut. Oh, that building over there, that's where I used to go to church. This isn't a message about never leaving a church. Josh, you're safe. (laughs) By the way, this church is nine years old. So unless you're very young or very young in the Lord, this is a different church for all of us. So I'm not trying to make a statement about that at all. But the church the American church of the last 30 to 50 years does have somewhat of a spotty record when it comes to relationships and a little story like that can remind us, oh yeah, all's not peachy keen in the Christian world. Friends, only the grace of God can keep any one of us, can keep this church from being another st- sad statistic. Now, Many of you, over the almost year that we have been here, have commented to me about how welcomed you felt when you first encountered this body of believers. And, and that has been our experience as well. I am so grateful. Again, this isn't... primarily. I'm not trying to, to underhandedly do something with this illustration. It's just to make us think a little. Uh, You are a very gracious and welcoming people. I am grateful to God for that. Every every week at our break, it's another reminder, another testament to how you love being together. May God continue to strengthen us in this area. We just need to make sure that we don't think our obligation to relationship ends after Sunday morning or after we've shaken someone's hand. See, when we compare these two passages, it's striking how much belonging and relationship and welcome is dripping from the description of the second mountain. The first mountain is it's very impersonal, very cold. But the second is all about relationship. We have come to the city of God, to God Himself, to His angels, to His church, to the saints before us, and to Jesus. All of them we are welcomed into fellowship with. Not that, again, we have the potential to be with these different individuals, these different groups. But we have come relationship first with God and then with his people is almost synonymous with what we have been called to in Christ acceptance by God means inclusion in his whole family first we are called to relationship with God so question for us this morning is that where you find your identity your fulfillment, your satisfaction. Is there real peace and satisfaction in that relationship first and foremost before anything else enters the picture? Is there relationship? Is, there, is that where we find our first identity, our first truest fulfillment? Because if, if you're looking for those things in other people, whether that be a spouse or a care group leader or a BFF, you're always going to be disappointed. All of those are poor substitutes for that relationship with God Himself. So spend time with our Father, fall in love with our Savior, treasure our relationship with Him, and and we'll find that those other relationships will be much more satisfying as well. Second, He he does call us into relationship with God's people. So the question for us is, are we pursuing that? Are we pursuing others to serve them, to encourage them, to befriend them? Or are we just too distracted thinking about who we wish would serve us in those ways? Let me mention a particular application for us here at at Sovereign Grace Church. There's nothing magical about care groups. They aren't in the Bible. Thou shalt have. That was the 11th commandment. Careth, groupus. Alright, it's not there. But relationships and relating to one another, they certainly are. And so we try to provide this context where we can practically... Develop and put into practice this relating to one another in ways that, frankly, we just can't with 300 people every week. A place where we can use our gifts, where we can know a few people on a deeper level, where they can know us, where we can serve them practically, where we can know them more intimately, encourage them specifically, and pray for them faithfully. We were with the care group leaders last Sunday evening time with all of our leaders that we take once a month we highlighted this value we don't want care groups to just be another teaching setting a a midweek bible study bible studies are wonderful nothing against bible studies it would be terrific if we were all able to be in other bible studies but they have a different purpose than what our care groups do in care groups we want to focus on Surprise, surprise, care. We want to encourage and pray for one another, to to support one another through the joys and the challenges of life. In that setting, we, we want to come together and we want to ask questions like, what is God doing in your life? How have you seen Him at work this week? What was it about the message that stuck out to you? What was God putting His finger on and and perhaps calling you to give attention to or respond in some way? How are you seeking to respond to what God is doing in your life? I work with the care group leaders and I know they take their role very seriously. We are blessed. We are rich. Because... The men and their wives that serve us so faithfully. They spend time and they prepare questions to facilitate discussion for the group on how to apply God's Word in our lives. Sunday, we also try to make it clear that if someone comes into your meeting and they're really struggling with something from their day or their week, don't just plow through your questions if If your whole care group meeting looks like you gathering around that person and you crying with them, and as a group you praying for them that 's the best care group you could have had that night it 's not just okay to do that that 's exactly what God wants us to do as we gather together. The opportunity for us. All to grow in relationships over two days is what I'm most excited about as we look towards the upcoming whole church retreat in June. But but there's this little well, there's a couple of factors for, for care groups, for church retreats, for one on one coffee time with a friend to really have an effect and bear fruit. There's a couple of things that, that really go a long way. The first would be showing up. I know, that's profound, isn't it? I thought of that one myself. None of these benefits can happen if we don't actually get together. It's cold and flu season and there are very legitimate reasons to not come to a meeting. So, may no one ever give even a second thought if you need to miss a meeting. Period, okay? You hear me? What I'm about to say is not saying you may never miss a meeting. All right. If you're sick, if your kids are sick, we don't want you there. (laughs) There are other legitimate reasons to miss meetings. But what I want us to be careful of is the temptation to be, how do we put this, feeling driven people rather than calling led people. Because we have full lives. We get tired. We have tough days at work or with the kids or fight with a friend and, and we just don't feel like going. We don't feel like relating. Staying home and watching Idol on TV is a lot more appealing and inviting some nights. Relating is work. I don't know anyone who doesn't find it preferable to skip a meeting here and there. And I very much include myself in that description. Just because it's inconvenient. I don't feel like it right at the moment. Or it's February and it's just kind of... Yeah. But showing up is where God meets us. Showing up when we don't feel like it is when God surprises us. Showing up is when God uses us. I'm not trying to build a law here that we legalistically follow. I just want us to put ourselves in the place where we allow God to work in our lives. Allow God to work in each other's lives. And sometimes... Just showing up is a victory. The second thing I want to encourage along those same lines is that we not just stop with showing up. We not just be attenders. Let's be participants. I've been trying to encourage the teens the last few cross-current meetings to, to really not just come and show up because this is their parents' church and this is what they're expected to do, but to make this their own. Be full participants in church life. Take ownership of of this as the place that God has called you to be right now. Participate. Now, if all you've got in you is to show up, you don't have the energy for anything more, don't not come because that's all there is. Alright, we'll take what we can get. But, For when we can muster a bit more, let's not just come with with thoughts of, I hope this snack is chocolate tonight. (laughs) Or how I'm going to go bust on so-and-so because their favorite team just traded one of their best players. Let's come asking God who we could get to know better that night. Let's come with something to share with the group from our devotion time. Let's come looking for someone to pray for, to offer a hand to. You see, if we all grow in coming to care and to to serve and to relate, maybe, maybe, maybe we'll all be less tempted to wonder on a dreary evening in the middle of the week whether it's really worth my time to be there because we'll see God at work time after time as we're faithful as we gather we'll see Him we'll be excited we'll anticipate what is coming friends we're we're called to relationship so let's see that that call affects everything finally we're also called to joy joy davidman reflects on the sabbath by telling of a martian anthropology student who has been sent to earth for an assignment the student sweeps over the united states on a fine sunday morning writing furiously with his writing tentacle all right that's what i read this week In his report, he notes that the creatures on the third planet are obviously sun worshipers. This one day in seven set aside for religious observance, sometimes loud and rowdy rituals are conducted in open air, drawing large crowds to arenas or bodies of water. Some of the religion's mystics address a holy ball, a solar symbol, They put themselves in groups of three or four with long clubs in open green fields. Others go down to the ocean, stripping almost naked and hurling themselves in ecstasy into the waves. When they are exhausted, they anoint their bodies with holy oils, lay flat on the ground, surrendering completely to the deity. This Martian goes on to tell of a small group of unbelievers who have rejected sun worship. They dress soberly, gather behind closed door and stained glass buildings, obviously designed to keep the sun out. Their faces and gestures demonstrate almost none of the religious frenzy with which the sun worshipers pursue their devotions. In fact, they almost appear placid, indicated minds blank of thought or emotion. Reflecting then on contemporary Christian believers and their lack of sheer joy in their Christianity, David had been asked, was the Martian wildly wrong or fantastically right? Now please understand, each of these illustrations, these stories are for illustration purposes only. They're solely for the purpose of causing us to think, to examine. None are veiled accusations at this church or any person. Trust me, I'm not that sophisticated. In each of these three areas, I see far more encouraging signs than alarms. In all three. As I am with you, as I have been here for almost a year now, there's far more to be encouraged by in each one of these areas. I think these are things that I'm not coming and saying these things because these are points of weakness. These are things that are present in your lives, in our life together. It's just that the call to discipleship isn't a call to maintain to hold steady. The call to discipleship is to keep running forward. It's a call to growth. Friends, we're already citizens of heaven, in this heavenly Jerusalem. But if we aren't full-time residents yet, we're still growing day by day into His likeness. So again, let's think of the two mountains is this very different picture and the emotions that are brought to mind. As we've mentioned about the first, it's a description filled with foreboding and fear. But in the second, we have come not only to relate to God, but we're already present in the joyful assembly even of the angels and their festal gatherings, their celebrations. Last week we looked at discipline and hardship and suffering. I want to be real clear. No one here is being encouraged to put on a happy face simply because we're supposed to be joyful people. Life is hard. And there are times to mourn. There are times... Joy doesn't show up on our faces. That's not sin. However, we are being confronted with whether we recognize the reality that we have already come to this high and lofty place in Christ. We are no longer at the foot of the mountain, afraid to touch it lest we die. We have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. We are in the presence of God Almighty who judges favorably and eternally on our behalf. We have joined the saints in heaven along with every other believer currently making up the church on earth plus the angels as they celebrate and worship God in all His glory. We have been invited in to participate. We have not come to a fearful place. We have come to a place of joy and adoration. In our struggles we may only be able to see as through a glass dimly. But we have already come to this heavenly place. It's not a someday, maybe location. It's a now and forever dwelling place for us as His children. So, can we just commit together, let's not be fake. It doesn't do any good for us to be plastic Christians. Just putting a smile on because that's what Christians are supposed to do. Let let us realize where real joy and real hope comes from. And if that so fills our hearts, then may it show on our faces. But let's be honest, because when we're honest, we give one another the opportunity to care for us when we're not in that place, to help us and be with us and minister to us in our place of need as well. As we were reminded during worship this morning, the Lord is at hand. We have a source of joy that is not dependent upon our immediate circumstances, but on our eternal one. We have the riches of Christ now. We enjoy relating with Him now. We don't have to wait till Judgment Day for our eyes to be opened. Or our tongues confess and our knees bow that He is Lord. He has mercifully made Himself known to us now. Is there joy in our life? Do we allow lesser news to devastate us? What better news could be revealed to us than what? God has revealed to us in Jesus Christ that our sins have been forgiven and we have been washed whiter than snow friends this is what we've been called to and for those that aim to be faithful disciples what we're called to affects everything may God help us to be people of grace people of relationship and people of joy let's pray together Lord thank you that you use times like this to, to pull back the veil a little bit to give us clearer vision of where we really stand with you Lord, would You help us to see? Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear because we look around us and it can be so hard to believe some of these things. But You have declared them to be true. Help us to see. Help us to cling to these realities as we run this race that You have set out for us. When we want to be faithful disciples of the right things. So fill us with an awareness of your grace, of overflow in us, the joy of relationship with you and with your church. And may that be evident in our lives and in our church, we pray.